Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breaths. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of a wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction or the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, I am so thankful to be here. It's always such an honor to get to come and and be here with you. I want to just say to the Ramsey family, we love you and we're praying. Lisa's mom passed away. And so uh, I'm getting to preach for Russ and we we love y'all and we're so thankful and y'all are precious to us. And 
Uh, it is so easy when you come into this place to, to feel your kindness and, and, um, and the sweetness of the Lord in this building. Um, and so what an incredible passage, Psalm 22. You know, we like to make life easy, but it's not, but we like to try. We, for instance, like to take the trouble out of the equation. I mean, just think about it. A gas grill. You don't even have to use charcoal. You don't even need matches. You just hit the ignition button and fire. A TV dinner. You just throw it in the oven, no preparation required. A Keurig coffee maker. Just a pie, just boom in one cup and you're off and running. An electric toothbrush. You wouldn't wouldn't want to pull a bicep brushing your teeth, would you? Gogurt. Yogurt in a tube. You snip the top off and just suck it down. (laughs) A ceiling clock. You wake up, open your eyes, and on your ceiling is the time, the date, and the weather temperature. You don't even have to move. A microwave oven. In minutes, you have whatever meal you would like. Well, I'm being a bit silly here, uh, and we need to get serious, don't we? We do try to get trouble out of our lives, but we can't. Even as Christians, we all face trouble. We face hard things and hard times. We're going to encounter trouble in our lives. And Psalm 22 has a lot to tell us, a lot of ways that we can get help when we face trouble. What do we, what do, we do with it? Well, I want to follow Russ's system as he's gone through uh, this great series of the Psalms and, and how do they help us pray. And so we're going to look at those three, three things that he's been using. What kind of Psalm is this? What this Psalm says And then how can we use this psalm to teach us or help us to pray? So first, what what kind of psalm is this? Well, Psalm 22 is known as a psalm of lament. To lament is to express deep sorrow, deep regret, or grief. We can lament through our words or or through our actions. Um, Lamenting is a common theme found In the Bible, we don't talk about it a lot, but it's in there all over the place. In fact, there's even an Old Testament book named Lamentations. Psalm 22 is also referred to as a messianic psalm. Benjamin Shaw put it this way, the New Testament writers refer to the book of Psalms more often than any other book of the Old Testament. This tells the reader that one major focus of the Psalms is the work of the Messiah and his kingdom. Since Christ had not yet appeared, he is spoken of generally in types and shadows and the characters of the Davidic king. In some Psalms, however, traditionally called Messianic Psalms, Christ is spoken of directly and clearly and specifically. These Messianic Psalms include Psalm Two, Psalm 22, 45, 72, and 110. Hence, one of the uses of the book of Psalms for our modern reader is to search for Christ because he's found there in the Psalter. 
In Psalm 22, we're taught to let even our troubles point us and lead us to the triumph of God granted to us through the giving of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his son, the Messiah, the promised one. So let's learn specifically how to put Psalm, to, Psalm 22 to work in practical ways. Um, God calls us to bring our regrets, to bring our grief, to bring our sadness, to bring our sorrow to him, to be specific. And so what is this Psalm saying? What does Psalm 22 say to us today? It's a Psalm written by King David. It was probably written during the time when in his life when Saul, the king of Israel, had become jealous of him. And he was chasing him down, chasing him about the nation, trying to kill him. Or, or it could have been written during a time in David's life when his spoiled son, Absalom, is after him to overthrow David and take the throne from him. He and his men were forced to flee for their lives. As we look at it, if we look at verses 1 through 21, we see a picture of David troubled and dealing with troubles in his life. If we look at verse 12, his enemies have surrounded him. Bulls encompassed him, a roaring ravenous lions after him. They hunt him, dogs. You can see that picture of a pack of dogs surrounding him, biting him, nipping at him. His body's failing in verse 2. Verse 16, the dust of death. He feels almost dead from the struggle of the trouble. But the worst thing that he expresses, the worst feeling he has, is that he feels forsaken by God. He feels separated from him. He feels like God is not there to help. He feels like God doesn't hear him in his struggle, in his pain, in his suffering. He feels di a distant. Do you ever feel like that? We do, don't we? John Calvin said that's a common place for Christians in the midst of of trouble, when we encounter trouble, when we feel alone, abandoned, wrung out, worn out, desperate, or depressed. So what do we do? Well, if we look at this passage, we see that David is honest. He comes as he is, struggling, frustrated, conflicted, suffering, sad, confused, and he brings all that to God. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't pretend. He doesn't become a stoic. I'm a Christian. Everything's fine. That's not the way God calls us to handle our troubles and our times of trouble. David comes to him with honesty and specificity. And he gives his troubles to God. He doesn't run from God with them. He runs to God with them. We're so tempted to isolate when we're in trouble, aren't we? We're so tempted to not tell the truth when we encounter troubles. And David, through Psalm 22, says, don't do that. Don't live like that. That's not going to help. That's not going to work. That's not going to grant you healing. Run to God. 
and voice those things to him. Give them to him. David is emotional. Bring our emotions to God. And let the truth lead us and guide us and direct us. That's what David does. Did you see it? In verse 4, David remembers his fathers trusted God in times of trouble. Verse 5, his people cried out to God to rescue them. David can draw on things that happened in his life and recount the people of Israel, the patriarchs, Abraham, and how God took care of him, Isaac, and how God spared him, Moses in the Red Sea, Joshua, fear not, be not dismayed. And so can we. We've got to run to the Bible and remember those stories and remember God's faithfulness throughout the scriptures. We can even use David. We all know the story of David and Goliath and God's deliverance of his people through that shepherd boy that he sent on an errand from the father to defeat Goliath. That is so helpful. But you know what the greatest help we see in this passage is? You see, David is a pointer to Christ. David is a picture of the one who would come. He's an imperfect pointer, but he points us to the perfect one. This passage is a picture of what we should do in times of trouble, but it's even more than that. It is a prophecy. It's a prophetic uh, song, symphony of the Messiah, of the coming of the Christ, a picture, one of the most detailed pictures of the crucifixion and the fulfillment of God's promise that one day he would send a Messiah. One day he would send the perfect lamb, come to take away the sins of his people. And David and all the Old Testament Christians look forward to that day, to the cross, to the lamb of God, God's Messiah, the promised one. In faith, he looked forward to that day for his salvation. Today, we look back to that cross. We look back to that suffering servant. We look back to that redeemer. But Psalm 22 is an incredible picture of that person, the Christ Jesus, the Son of God. In Psalm 22, we have one of the most detailed pictures of the crucifixion. Now, this is an incredible thing because... Do you know when this psalm was written? It was hundreds of years before humans were even using the crucifixion. It was a thousand years before Jesus. And yet here we have this clear and detailed and specific picture of the crucifixion, of the death of Christ. If we look at verse 1, Jesus quoted in Matthew 27, 46... Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by God. Jesus was crucified and dead and was buried. David was rescued and delivered. Jesus was not spared. Jesus was not rescued from his enemies. 
Look at verses 12 and verses 13 and verses 16. Rome and the religious leaders and this group of people that gathered around the cross cried out, give us Barabbas, crucify him, crucify Jesus. And so we see this imagery, bulls of Bashan as they pounded on him and beat him, oxen and horns and roaring, devouring lions. And we can think of that being pierced holes in his hands from the nails and a spear piercing his side, a pack of wild dogs surrounding him, biting, nipping, whipping, bleeding Savior. Jesus could have called down legions of angels, but he didn't. Verses 14 through 18, we have this incredible detailed prophecy of Christ's crucifixion. It arose as an incredibly extreme form of of torture. It was brutal. It was humiliating. And this psalm points us to that reality. It points us to that event, that divine revelation, that point with which Christians, we all look, Old Testament, look forward, New Testament, and us, we look back to. And we think of Christ. As we look at verse 14, he was poured out like water in reference to him feeling his life slowly ebbing away into death, death on a cross. His bones were out of joint, a reference of Jesus being stretched out by the arms and hung on the cross. He turned, his heart turned to wax and melted, a reference to his heart struggling, struggling to push oxygenated blood to his extremities. We think of the cross and him hanging there on our behalf. Verse 15, his strength dried up like a potsherd, tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth. Jesus slowly suffering and dying, his body dehydrated. And we remember John 19, 28, Jesus saying on the cross, I thirst. In verse 16, we hear surrounded by evil men and we think of those Roman soldiers and those religious uh, rulers and those criminals that hung beside him. He's surrounded with people watching, waiting for him to die. Pierced hands and feet. Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross. And remember, they'd never heard of this. David didn't have any experience with the crucifixion. Verse 17, this is incredible, y'all. Count all my bones. One of the requirements for the perfect Lamb of God was that he couldn't have broken bones. Oftentimes in a crucifixion, the soldiers broke the legs to speed up the death, but not with Jesus. He died quickly. His bones were not broken. And people stared. Jesus, it was done in a public manner. Verse 18, they divided my garments and cast lots over my clothing. The Roman soldiers did that at the cross. The physical beating that Jesus took was awful, but that wasn't the worst part of the crucifixion or the cross. The spiritual was even worse. On the cross, God the Father turned his back on Jesus. Jesus became our substitution, our substitutionary atonement. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Again, Jesus was forsaken. David ultimately was not. But Jesus was, so we don't have to be. Jesus was not spared, so we can be spared from our sin. Jesus died so that we could live. He paid what we couldn't owe. That he paid what we could not because of what we owe. He paid it so we are free. Our sin had to be dealt with. We see in verse 3, God is holy and he can't leave sin unpunished. And so Christ took our punishment for us. He lived a perfect life and he died a criminal's death. In Christ's death on the cross, God's justice is satisfied. On the cross, God poured out his righteous wrath on Jesus as our propitiation. And in that sacrifice, his holy righteousness is satisfied because of the work of Christ. Now, I've just gotten this, and I know y'all, I hope y'all are familiar with this. I love coming in here and seeing all the beautiful works of art. And so it's been so much fun to hear about Russ's book. I'm about to start it. Buzz Graham read it and said it's unbelievable. So if you hadn't read it, you got to. But I love this cover, and it's a picture of one of Rembrandt's paintings. And in this boat, Rembrandt painted himself. Well, I had heard probably from Russ and in a devotional or something that he had done about another painting that Rembrandt did. It's a painting of the crucifixion. And of course, in that painting, Jesus is the focus as he hangs on the cross. But off to the side in the shadows, there's a crowd around the cross. And in, in one of those people in the crowd, Rembrandt painted himself. It gives me chills. It's incredible, isn't it? Just like he painted himself in this boat. He understood, and we need to understand, our sin nailed Jesus to the cross. He could have easily painted you and painted me. And he understood that, and he painted himself because it was our sin that led God to send his son to hang on the cross to pay what we couldn't pay because he loves us. You know, it's so funny if you think about it. We often think about how powerful Rome was and how awful crucifixion was, and, and it was meant to be awful. And we think of the fact that Jesus hung on the cross, and I often think the nails held him there, but it wasn't the nails. It wasn't Rome. It was God's love. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Remember, he said, nobody takes my life, but I give it. And so it wasn't the nails, it wasn't the cross, it wasn't the Romans, it was God's love for us that kept him on the cross. We see that David was troubled. We also see a picture of triumph, of triumph, of triumphant victory. Verses 22 to 31. The glimpse of the cross shows the greatness of our sin, but it doesn't stop there. The, the picture of the cross points us to a greater love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 15. You lay me in the dust of death, 
Psalm 22 says. That Hebrew word for lay has the nuance of ordained or appointed. The cross was not an accident. The cross was ordained. It was appointed. It was God's plan and his purpose to save sinners like you and like me so that we can have a relationship with him, an intimate, thriving, familiar, growing relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then that glorious verse 31. It's incredible. He has done it. Or as Jesus put it on the cross in John 19, It is finished. And do you know when he said that, what happened at the temple? The curtains that separated the Holy of Holies, the curtains that kept everybody out from being in the very presence of God, they were three three feet thick, y'all, and 30 feet high. And do you know what the Bible says about that curtain when Jesus said, it is finished, and he died? It was torn from the top down. In Christ, we're free to run into the throne room of God and jump into his mighty, glorious lap with our troubles, with the hard and the hurt in our lives. Don't run from him, run to him. The throne room is open because of the work of Christ. And so we see in verse 22, Jesus, that Messiah, the promised one, the prophesied one, the one prophesied about, names us among his brothers. Verse 23, through Christ, we're made offspring of Jacob, offspring of Israel. In Christ, we're included in the covenant community, the church. We're called saints. We're called the beloved. Verse 26, Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. It was received by a holy God, by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we see in this incredible passage, we're asked to come to his table. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's here and we do it every Sunday because we need to be reminded of this. In our trouble, in our struggle, when we're confused, when we don't understand, when we hurt, when we need help, it can feel like he's not here. He doesn't hear us. And because of the work of Christ, because of the cross, because of the picture we're reading about that happened when Jesus was hung on the cross, we can know he was forsaken. He was at that point not heard. The holiness of God and the wrath of God was laid on him so that you and me in every situation, in every second, every struggle, every trouble, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, he will hear us. He will never forsake us. We can cling to those promises that that God gives us. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Because of Christ, we need never Never doubt that. It's true and it will always be true in every situation. Verse 26, all who trust in him will eat at his table. We can't miss that. And so when you come to this table, it's a reminder. Remember Jesus when he celebrated the first time said, do this in remembrance of me. Well, he never forgets. He's God. He never forgets, but he knows we do. 
We struggle to remember. We struggle to believe it. We struggle to rest in it. We struggle to hang on to it. And so he says, you get up to this table so I can say to you, I love you like this. I did this for you. <laughs> Look at that cat-like weakness. <laughs> this table is for you because you're my sons and my daughters. And then he goes on to say, not just you, this church, this covenant community, this family, the big C, the church will spread out all over the world. Sometimes it feels like that's not true. Sometimes it feels like Christianity has no power or position in this world. It's not true. People are coming to Christ in droves in China, in Africa, and here in the United States. How do I know that? Because this passage tells us that. Did you see it? For generation and generation, even for those who aren't born yet. And just think about it. When Christ was crucified, what happened to the disciples? They were dismayed. And they didn't know what to do. And so what did they do? They went to a room. They locked themselves in because they didn't want to be killed by Rome. And they watched Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, be crucified. But something changed, didn't it? He met them there in that room. He didn't even bother to open the door. He just walked in. And then they exploded out of that room. And the world has never been the same. They went to the ends of the earth. Every tongue, tribe, race, and nation, as it says in Revelation 7. Verse 29, rich and poor, verse 30 and 31, to all the coming generations. To the end of the age, we cannot not think of Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. Because on the cross, he was not with Jesus. And because that happened, he will be with us always to the end of the age. Look at this incredible room. Look at this beautiful group of people. This is the little C called Christ Presbyterian Church Cool Springs. Here we are in Nashville, Tennessee, Brentwood, Tennessee. I'm not sure which one it is. Franklin, Tennessee. It's the people of God gathered. And he was talking about us, y'all. We're Gentiles. And here we are, the little C. But don't, don't forget, there's a big C too. His people are everywhere. Because what he says he's going to do, he does. And who he says he is, he is. Now, how can we use this psalm to help us in prayer? Well, first, we have to understand this. And we stink at this, y'all, and we got to get better at it. Bring our lamentations to him. Bring our troubles to him. Don't run from him, run to him. And that means don't be silent. Talk to him about it. Don't isolate, don't separate. Be honest, be specific, be detailed. The psalmist was so detailed, y'all. Bring your troubles to God. 
and let him deal with you. Your personal troubles, the troubles you're experiencing in this world that we live in, those things that you can't control, those outward circumstances that catch you off guard, that smack you around, that beat you down. And then lastly, come to him with your struggles with him. Sometimes you're going to be like David. Sometimes it's going to feel like and look like, is he here? Is he real? Is he asleep at the wheel? What's going on? I'm, I'm crying out. I need you. Trouble is close by. And he says, be honest. Now, we ought to be careful here because we don't want to be rebellious. We don't want to grumble and complain against him. But we serve a God that doesn't want us to play games. He wants a real relationship. He knows what you're thinking anyway. Come and be honest. He'll heal you. He'll help you. He'll walk you. And be patient. His timing is not our timing. And his timing is better. And it's better for us. It just doesn't feel like that sometimes. So don't let your emotions control you. Let his truth and the truth of his word hold you fast and lead you forward. Secondly, pray through the stories of God's faithfulness in the word. Oh my goodness, y'all. The Bible is so full of beautiful, amazing stories of God's faithfulness and his provision and his rescue. I mean, think about Noah and his ark, Abraham and Isaac, Moses and the Red Sea. True stories about true people, sinners like you and like me, David and Goliath, or Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus and the demoniac and Mark, Paul and the Philippian jailer, the friends that sawed a hole in the roof and, and let their friend down because they knew Jesus could do something about it. Lazarus, come forth. The resurrection Take the time to recount those things and to apply those principles in your life because they're true for us as his people. You know, I do a lot of marriage counseling. I do a lot of premarital counseling. And one of the homework assignments I give my couples that are about to be married or I ask them to get a notebook. It can be fancy or not so fancy. And to begin to journal the fingerprints of God and how they met one another, how he has met them throughout their lives just as individuals and as a couple. You need to do that. It's incredible. And you don't think you're going to forget some of those amazing things, but we do. That's why we got to keep coming to the table because we forget. And he doesn't want us to forget. He wants us to remember. So write it down. And then every now and then just go back and read through it. It's amazing. His fingerprints are all over the place in the lives of his people, in the lives of his church. I have a, a book you've got to go get. After you get this one, <laughs> then go get Pray With Your Eyes Open by Richard Pratt. Or another one, The Attributes of God by Arthur Pink. Let his attributes... Let his names, let his titles, let his promises wash over you in prayer. Pray through those things. Our prayers don't change God, but change, he changes us through them. And then fourthly, 
pray for the gospel, pray for the great commission, pray that as Christ prays, cool springs, as Christ prays, that we would give the gospel away. And let me tell you this, I'm glad this is nice. It's so much more fun to say nice things. But I gotta tell you, you come into this beautiful place and it is easy to feel the kindness of God, the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ explodes out of this place. And I'm glad that's nice. I'm not trying to be sweet to you. It's true. And nobody can accomplish that without him in us. And he is pouring out of you. And you are a blessing. And he will use you. He promises to. So pray for the gospel. Pray for his church, not just here in Nashville and Brentwood and Franklin, but throughout the world. Pray for the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And pray for his missionaries. And pray that we will be ambassadors. A beautiful and clear picture. Y'all are well on the way. Keep it up. You feel like him. He is blessing. He is honoring. He is going forward. Well, uh, uh, the hymn, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, I heard this story through one of my favorite people of all the world who passed away recently, can't well, a while ago, David Calhoun. He did a devotion on rainbows. And I want to read this. He told this story. Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go was, was written in the, on a summer evening in 1882 by George Matheson. During his studies at the University of Glasgow, Matheson's poor eyesight failed, and he became totally blind. Despite his handicap, he graduated from the university, assisted by a devoted sister, completed ministerial studies, and became a pastor. Seventeen year, years later, while serving the church in, in Ireland, Matheson wrote his famous hymn. He tells the story in his own words. It was composed with extreme rapidity. It seemed to me that its construction occupied only a few minutes, and I felt myself rather in the position of the one who was being dictated to rather than the original artist. I was suffering from extreme mental distress, and the hymn was the fruit of pain and trouble. Many conjectures have been made concerning the cause of this mental distress from which George Matheson suffered. Because of the opening line, O love that will not let me go, it has been suggested that Matheson had been bitterly disappointed in his hopes of marrying a young woman to whom he had become deeply attached. It was said that her refusal to marry him was because of his blindness. In our hymnals, the third verse of Matheson's hymn reads, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain, and feel the promise is not in vain, that morn shall tearless be. But this is not what George Matheson originally wrote. He wrote, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I climb the rainbow in the rain, and feel the promise is not in vain, that morn shall tearless be. Sometime later, a committee was choosing him hymns for a, a church hymn book, and they thought climbing a rainbow was a little you know, risque for proper people, for, for elders and ladies of proper. 
Maybe for children they thought that'd be okay, but not for grown-ups. And so they called him and asked him, would you be willing to change climb to trace? So we're told that he relented. Um, and the blind minister pointed out their very reasonable objections to his fanciful line and suggested he might agree to change the words. And so he did. But you see, of course, the great difference. You understand what was lost when we read that. It's one thing to be safe and secure and trace the rainbow through the rain. It's altogether a different thing to be out in the storm as Matheson was, as we often are. He was not sitting in the window of a cozy house. He was out in the greatest storm of his life, in trouble. Oh God, he was out in the storm. And the storm hit him with full force, and the rain mingled with his tears ran down his cheeks. But he was not overwhelmed, because he saw the sure promise of God, founded on the promised one, Jesus. And so, let us climb the rainbow in Christ, the promise, and know that God's promises are all true. And we know that because the promised one came and did what we couldn't do. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we need you, especially in our times of trouble and struggle and hurt and hard. Would you come and be close to us? Would you come and watch over us? Accomplish your will in our lives and in this world for your glory and our blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.